Exodus 24 this morning, moving right along through the book. As in any epic story throughout Exodus, there have been a number of dramatic moments. The burning bush, the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, and the Ten Commandments, to name just a few. But no scene, save for the Lord's glory filling the temple at the book's conclusion, no scene is more dramatic than the one before us in chapter 24 this morning. It is in these 18 verses that we witness the ceremonial union of God and his people. It is here that God confirms his covenant with Israel. Covenant, if, uh, as we've talked about it, we said that covenant in the Bible is the promise of present, continued, and future loyalty and love. And it might be helpful to think of this uh, covenant confirmation that's going on in Exodus 24 as a wedding ceremony of sorts. And in this wedding ceremony, God is binding himself to his people. Uh, Today, the covenant of marriage is actually entered into uh, with words, marked by the exchanging of rings, sealed with a kiss, and then celebrated with food. And so things aren't all that different in the time of the Exodus. Even then, covenants could be entered into with words, symbols of loyal devotion, and celebratory feasts. The marriage ceremony in Exodus 24 will feature all of these things. And what we'll learn from our text this morning is this, that God makes his people his own through his word, blood, and food. We're going to do it in two parts. We're going to carry our illustration throughout. We're going to look at the engagement and the ceremony. Let's pray and get started together. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning, that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would make us able to receive your word, to be led by your Holy Spirit. Spirit, we ask that you would be our teacher this morning. Father, use this time to increase our affections for you, for one another, and for your glory. Pray that we would see uh, a different aspect of you and love you more deeply as a result. Show us yourself. We thank you for this word and we submit ourselves to it. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's look at verse 1. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. I actually think this whole scene is really exciting. God God himself is giving the call to worship. He's telling Moses, get Aaron and his sons, get the elders, and come and worship me. Poor Moses has been up and down the mountain of God. Lord knows how many times at this point, but he must have enjoyed the opportunity to obey this command. Come and worship. He gets to bring God's betrothed people close to God. Finally. I mean, he must have been anticipating this moment since God at first made his proposal to the people back in chapter 19. See, when God gave the 
Ten Commandments and the case laws and the Book of the Covenant to the people. He, he was showing them what he was like and inviting them to be his people by being like him. See, if Israel was to be God's wife, she had to be willing to live and look like God. And so the law, as God is explaining himself, showing his character in the law, actually serves as a marriage proposal of sorts. So let me summarize Exodus, parts of it anyway for you, in kind of a narrative fashion. See, the king of the universe has rescued this raggedy slave girl by slaying a great dragon who had her locked away in shackles. He then told her her name that was long forgotten, Israel. And now he is asking her if she will take his name as her own. See, Yahweh's proposal was made back in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 19. And it sounds a little bit more like, be my wife, than will you marry me. But, but the sentiment is the same. God says, I've brought you to myself on the backs of eagles because I want you as my own. If you will honor and commit to me, you will be my treasure. And the world will marvel at your beauty because you will reflect my beauty. It's a paraphrase, of course, but God's words and actions are just as romantic. I mean, the people respond to the proposal in verse 8 of 19 with a unanimous, yes, of course. Unlike me, God didn't have to do any convincing at his proposal. Anyhow, the people say, we will do all the Lord has spoken. And God tells Moses, if you remember, that he must purify the people before he comes down on Mount Sinai in their presence and tells them more about himself. And so Moses purifies the people. The mountain trembles and is awash with smoke and thunderstorms and the sounds of trumpets as God descends on it in fire. People shudder as the strong voice of God speaks the Ten Commandments to them. And then they say, hey, we are really afraid, Moses. Could you go and talk to God for us and then come back and tell us what he says? It's a little bit of like middle school romance, if you ever did that, passing notes. Go tell her uh, what I think about her, and then you tell me what she thinks about me. And that's kind of what Moses is, is doing here. He's playing the role of mediator, and he's going to tell the people all that is required to have a relationship with this perfectly and holy and glorious God. And they accept. That's what we see going on in verse 3. Moses comes and he reminds the people, he tells the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they're responding to the Lord's law. They're responding to his promise. They want to be his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy people. They're saying, yes, we will honor you, God, by obeying you. They want to allow God to make them beautiful and holy so that the world will see him in them. That's what they're agreeing to. And if you've ever been to a wedding, there are two responses to a bunch of questions that the bride and groom have to give. And usually uh, they're so nervous that they even have trouble with these. But the two responses are, I will and I do. I do being the more famous of the two. But at the beginning of the ceremony, the bride and the groom are, are asked to declare their intent. The officiant says something akin to, will you have this person as your lawful wedded husband or wife? If they say, I will, it means they're willing to enter into the covenant of matrimony. But they're not actually married until they say the I do's or the actual marriage vow. 
And the same thing is going on here. Israel's declaring her intent by saying the I wills in verse 3. And she's going to say the I do's in verse 7. People commit. And in the first part of verse 4, we see that Moses is writing all of this down. But also, so is God. Look at, look at verse 12. Drop down there real quick. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments, which I have written for their instruction. I mean, why does God need to write this down too? Doesn't Mo, isn't Moses' words enough? You can have two copies. Uh, one commentator suggests this. Since a covenant is a legally binding relationship, it needs to be written down. According to the ancient custom, two copies were prepared, one for each party. And in this case, God allowed his people to keep both the original and the duplicate. And so we can see that these documents are going to serve as a wedding certificate of sorts. It's going to be a record of the union that is taking place between God and his people. I also think that we have hints here of the inspiration of Scripture. See, Moses and God write the same words. Moses' words are God's words. And in this connection between Moses as God's prophet and God himself has been emphasized for us throughout Exodus. Moses is the prophet and the priest who heralds God's word to God's people and serves as their mediator. And one of the primary reasons we're told that uh, this whole incident at Sinai happens is in chapter 19, verse 9, right? One of the reasons God descends on the mountain prior to the giving of the law is in order to authenticate Moses as his chosen representative. The people are to trust and believe Moses' words because he speaks with the voice of God. The people will only enjoy relationship with God and experience his blessings insofar as they trust and believe Moses. Israel will belong to God as his covenant people. But only Moses is allowed to draw intimately close to God. Everyone else has to worship him at a distance. And that truth is showcased in verses 13 through 18 for us. As Moses alone enters the cloud of God's glory and ascends the mountains. What's, what's clear to us is that Moses is the go-between between God and Israel. He is the one that helps bring them together. He is their mediator. He is the efficient, if you will. And he's going to uh, be the master of ceremonies as this covenant goes down. In the second part of verse 4, we see him continue with that uh, responsibility. He receives the I will of the people. And then we read, He rose early in the morning, and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. See, Moses is not only going to lead this ceremony, he's decorating for it too, right? He's putting out the centerpieces and the flowers. He's making sure that the lighter for the unity candle is in place. He's ushering everyone into the proper seat. Israel is sitting on the bride's side, and he will sit on God's side. He, he's setting the stage for a ceremony. The 12 pillars are sent up, set up to represent Israel, and the altar represents the Lord. Right? And the sacrifices that will be made on the altar will confirm the people's need for God's long-suffering mercy and for fellowship with him. Israel needs and will need forgiveness. I mean, that's the, the meaning that's ultimately wrapped up in the burnt offering 
uh, burnt offerings are an offering that's dedicated entirely to the Lord. Fire comes down, burns the whole thing to ashes. And they are made with a perfect and blemishless animal. And and what they point to is an atonement for sin. The people realize that in order for this perfectly holy God to have relationship with them, that they need their sin atoned for. Their offering is a way of asking for God to give his love to them, to give himself to them. We also see that they offer a peace or fellowship offering. These also deal with sin, but the emphasis is more on thanksgiving for the relationship that the worshiper enjoys with God. This offering is shared between the people and God, and as a, it's a physical picture of their friendship. And so uh, it's actually my favorite kind of offering because instead of being entirely consumed by fire, uh, the meat's drained of its blood and then grilled up for the people to eat. Right? They, they grill it and they eat it because they're sharing a meal with the one that they have fellowship with. They're sharing a meal with God. How they grilled it, I don't know. Mike would argue for charcoal. Uh, he's an evangelist for such things, but I don't know. They would grill it and they would eat it as a sign of fellowship. They were grateful for the reconciliation they enjoyed with God. But, but at the end of the day, when you think about offerings and sacrifices, what I want you to know is this. Every offering is an appeal by the worshiper for God to give himself to them. Right? They're asking, God, give yourself to me. And that's just what God is doing. Look at verse 6. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. It's an old school wedding, and, and so the covenant promises are going to be symbolized by blood rather than rings. Uh, contemporary weddings, I think, might be a little bit more interesting if they went down this way, right? <laughs> People might take their vows more seriously if there's blood everywhere. But in the ancient world, a covenant was typically sealed with blood to show what would happen to either party if they failed to live up to their end of the bargain. And so in the ceremony before us, the portion of blood that Moses puts in bowls, part of that portion was for sprinkling on the people as a sign that they were recipients of the advantage that that shed blood provided, which was relationship with God. Right? They would appeal to God through their sacrifices, and their sacrifices made them able to have relationship with God. The portion of blood sprinkled on the altar was God's, and it signified that he was in covenant with God. Israel, that he's the other part of this deal. We're reminded in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is not forgiveness of sin. And what we have here is a visible display of how blood from an animal in in the ceremony of sacrifice would highlight uh, the need or the concept of an atoning death. It's blood that allows Israel to enjoy relationship with God. It's the blood of these sacrifices that allows them to draw close to him. Blood was the means by which people would have their appeal to God to give himself to them answered with a yes. The shed blood of sacrifice was a way in which the uh, the people tied the knot with God. In verse 7, Moses takes the book of the covenant and reads it in the hearing of the people. And they say, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses is asking them to stick with our illustration. Do you, Israel, in the presence of God and these assembled witnesses, promise to love and to cherish God in sickness and in health, in prosperity and in adversity? And they're saying, I do. 
Do you promise to be to him in all things true and faithful? A wife that clings to him and him alone as long as life shall last. And they're saying, I do. Do you take him to be your lawful wedded husband for all eternity? And the people are saying, we do. The people are giving their I do's. But as history will soon show us, they will fail. It reminds us that nothing is easier than saying words and nothing is harder than living them day after day. God's people will indeed fail to keep covenant. They'll fail to be steadfastly loyal and loving to God. Nevertheless, the ceremony continues in verse 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood that is sprinkled on the people here indicates that the fellowship between them and God has just been confirmed. That's why it's called the blood of the covenant. Moses is basically pronouncing Israel and God husband and wife. They're officially in covenant marriage with one another. They are his people. He is their God. And they move on to the reception. Verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Moses and the other representatives of the people partake of the peace offering. They eat a fellowship meal in the presence of God and they don't die. Right? That's remarkable. If you remember just back in chapter 19 when God comes down on the mountain initially, even before he comes down, he sets up those boundaries and he says, if somebody touches the mountain, even if it's an animal, kill them. They're to be shot on sight. And then later after he's already there, he's telling Moses, keep the people back. If they come too close, I'm going to break out against them. They will die, but that's, that's not what happens here. God doesn't break out against them. No, he doesn't lay a hand on them. They've become his treasured possession. He's identified here as the God of Israel. They see God and live. At this point, if you're going to object, you might say, wait a minute, I thought that no one could see God and survive. Right? Exodus 33:20 says, God says himself, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And that's true. No mortal man can see the full splendor of God and survive. And what we have here is something similar to Moses' experience back in Exodus 33. The people are getting a small glimpse of God and his glory. They don't see in full but in part, dimly as if in a mirror, and their gaze never raises above his feet. They see the God of Israel. I mean, look at, look at how this is described. Under his feet, there, were a, there was a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And, and the word that's used here, it's a special kind of stone. Uh, it's clear, kind of blue. But what the author's trying to help you understand is that this is a magnificent scene. I mean, how ridiculously awesome it must have been. What, did, what was it like for pavement to stretch across the sky? It looked kind of bluish. And then your feet don't even get, uh, your, your feet, your eyes don't even get above God's feet. And you're like, this is awesome. I mean, to see God even in part and to live is scandalous. I mean, that's why the author's taking the time to emphasize that God does not kill them. Right? He follows it. They saw God and he didn't kill them. 
He doesn't kill them because he is in communion with them. Douglas Stewart notes, in the ancient world, in many places in the modern world, people would not eat together if they were not somehow allies or family. Eating was understood to convey acceptance, to declare approval of those with whom one dined. And so what we see here is that God is confirming his relationship with Israel. Through their words, they've said, we are going to do this. Through the blood of a sacrifice and through the eating of a meal. So the covenant is confirmed in three ways. We're going to look at it again. Words, God proposes. The people accept the terms and conditions of the proposal. They agree to keep the covenant and be wed to God. Blood, Israel uses sacrifices and offerings to make an appeal to God for him to give himself to them, which he does by his grace. We also see the food. God's union with his acceptance and approval of Israel is pictured in the sharing of a fellowship meal. I mean, this is salvation, right? Tim Chester says, this is salvation, to eat in the presence of God. God makes his people his own through his word, blood, and food. It is through covenant that God binds himself to his people. Covenant, though, is the promise of present, continued, and future loyalty and love. And this covenant is not one the people can keep. Its requirements will time and again expose the faults and the sins of the people. I mean, if you're married, you know how marriage can uh, have a way of revealing flaws within yourself that you didn't even know existed. Likewise, Israel's marriage to God, living under his law, exposes the people's inability to love him loyally. The law they promised to obey not only reveals God's heart and holiness, it also reveals the ugly hearts of the people and their unholiness. The blood of the covenant is yet to dry on their faces, and it's clear that they will not be able to keep this promise. Time and again, they will fail to love God. And as we saw when we measured ourselves against just the Ten Commandments, we don't fare any better when it comes to obeying the law. Remember, we set up that checklist and we worked through the Ten Commandments and we said, all right, which of these have I kept? And some of y'all fell for my trick and you're like, I kept six and seven. And then we looked forward to Jesus and he said, actually, if you've been angry with somebody, you're guilty of murder. If you've looked at a woman lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. And we said, none of us can keep any of these laws, let alone all of them. We said that the Ten Commandments are like major arteries that share the same blood pumped by the same heart. If all the arteries are kept healthy, the blood flows properly, and the heart keeps beating. But if just one of them is fatally severed, blood escapes furiously, and the heart stops. And we said that the point of that illustration is to say that the law is a unity. That though the Ten Commandments are distinct, they are part of the same whole. They share the same heart. So to break one of the laws is to break all of them, as James tells us. Because all the laws say, share the same heart, which is God's heart. To break the law is to break the heart of God. We break God's heart by our unfaithfulness. Just like Israel. This covenant, the Mosaic covenant, underlines the need for a better Moses 
and a better covenant. And we've been given both. In Jesus, we have a better Moses. We have a better covenant. We have a better prophet, priest, and king, a better fellowship. His blood speaks a better word. In Christ, we have a new covenant of grace. And this new covenant grants to us all the blessings of God, and it removes from us the curse of God by uniting us to God the Son. Jesus fulfills the Mosaic covenant by living a perfect life of loyal love and devotion to God. He earns all of the covenant's blessings. He also takes the curse due to lawbreakers by dying as a blemishless lamb. You see, if you've trusted in Jesus, he is your burnt offering that makes atonement for your sin. And he is the peace offering that allows you to share the life of God. You see, as ignorant as they were, when Israel was offering sacrifices to God, they were not only making an appeal for him to give himself to them, they didn't know it. They were asking for so much more than that. Because in order for God to give himself to them, he would have to give himself for them. And he did. And not only for Israel, but for the whole world. In fulfillment of that promise he made to Abraham long ago. And indeed it was through Abraham's one offspring, true Israel, Jesus Christ, that God would bring blessing to the nations. Friends, Jesus loves you and gave himself for you. I mean, that, that, the gospel really, really simply, we can put it in four words, Jesus in my place. That's the gospel. He lives in your place so that you can have the blessing of God. He dies in your place and takes the curse of God for you. You cannot earn right relationship with God. You need a substitute. You need the grace of God. Non-Christian, I beg you, be reconciled to God. Trust in Christ Jesus so that you might rejoice together with his people and say with him, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus loves you. He gave himself for you. Just like Israel would only experience the blessing of God and relationship with God insofar as they trusted his mediator, Moses, so too will you only enjoy relationship with God and experience his blessing insofar as you believe in and trust Jesus, the true and better Moses the final mediator, the one mediator between God and man, by whom's, whose blood we have been ransomed. He loves you. Gave himself for you. Will you love him back? Will you love him back by repenting, that is turning from your sin and believing the gospel? In the new covenant, we make our appeal to God for acceptance, affirmation, and fellowship on the basis of Jesus' substitutionary life and death. And our inclusion in this new covenant is confirmed in three ways. You may have guessed that it's words, blood, and food. Words. You hear the gospel and put your faith in Jesus, confessing him as Lord. A profession of belief 
is your acceptance of an engagement ring. It's how Christians say, I will to God. Blood. You put physical meat on your spiritual bones of belief by being baptized into the substitutionary death and life of Jesus. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, Everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus' blood is the means by which God's people had their appeal to God to give himself to them answered with a yes now and forever. It is in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. See, baptism is the wedding ring that symbolizes your faith and love for Jesus. It is the completion of your confession. Baptism is how the Christian formally says, I do to God. And then there's food. The authenticity of your union with Christ is evidenced by your enduring in Christ, which is pictured in the Lord's Supper, one of the many things. This covenant meal is our family tradition. And traditions teach. They teach us about our commitment to Christ who died for us and our commitment to one another. It teaches us that we are looking forward to that great marriage supper of the Lamb. And this covenant meal is to only be eaten by members of the church, that is, those who share in Christ. It brings the who of the church into a clear and sharp image as it displays and dramatizes the gospel. And this is why the being excommunicated or excommunioned is a big deal. When a professing Christian is dismissed from the local church as the result of unrepentant sin, they're being barred from enjoying this family meal. What the church is saying in the discipline of that individual is that their profession of faith in Jesus has been negated by their rebellion against Christ in their life and or doctrine. This is why being at the table is a big deal. When we eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus together as a church, we are affirming and assuring one another's Christianity. We are renewing our commitment to God. I mean, the Lord's Supper is the renewal of our wedding vows, which in marriage is typically pictured in sexual intercourse. So when you participate in the Lord's Supper, you are saying to God again, I still do. Those words I spoke years ago, that confession I made, the water I was baptized with, I still do. I'm still committed to you. I still love you. I am enduring. I am persevering in this faith that you have given. In the new covenant as in the old, God makes his people his own, through his word, blood, and food. It's only through the loving sacrifice of Jesus that we are able to enjoy God's promise of present, continued, and future loyalty and love. I think one of the things that this teaches us is that relationship requires sacrifice. And sacrifice is precisely what Jesus calls his disciples to. We've read the verse many times, but in Mark 8, 34, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
Christians are to follow Jesus in giving themselves up for the sake of the gospel. And just as Jesus gives himself up for his people, he calls his people to give themselves up for others. We're actually called to do more than just do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We are to do unto others as Jesus has done unto us by making sacrifices for them. Hebrews 13, 6 says, Do not neglect what is good and share. For God is pleased with such sacrifices. It's easy to say you follow Christ, but much harder to actually walk behind him. Words are wind. Nothing is easier than saying words, and nothing is harder than living them day after day. Christian, you are called to give yourself up in order to share good with others. And this starts by giving yourself up to Jesus and his people. If you belong to Jesus, you must give yourself to the community of faith. You do this by sharing your life with the church. When you become a Christian, your independence, and you lose some of your independence, and you become interdependent. This means that you cannot live on an island. That's sin. It means that others have the right to speak truth into your life. Similar to getting married. When you get married, you give up some of your individual freedoms in order to achieve deeper intimacy. Right? I still have trouble with this sometimes. I've got to call my wife and tell her where I'm going so she doesn't get worried about me. If I'm going from point A to point B and I stop at a point in between and I'm like an hour late, she's going to be worried about me. But I give up my independence to go and do whatever I want so that her and I can have a deeper intimacy together so we can enjoy a more healthy relationship. And it's the same thing with kids. If you've had children, right? You give up a whole lot of independence. Instead of going out on Friday night and hanging out with your friends until 11 or midnight or doing whatever it is you do for fun, you go to bed at Stony Creek midnight, right? Nine o'clock. Those kids are going to be getting up and you want to be ready. But you give up that independence. You make that sacrifice because you love them. See, likewise, when we are wed to Christ and knit to his body, we lose some freedom. We lose some independence in order to enjoy the greater pleasures of intimacy with God and his people. So let me ask you, do you live as if you were the sole and supreme authority in your life? Or do you lose yourself? Relationship requires sacrifice. Giving yourself to Jesus and his church requires sacrifice. I'll give you four examples. Give yourself, or four exhortations, I should say. Give yourself to gathering for worship on Sunday morning. Be willing to sacrifice sleep, comfort, routine, maybe even career to do so. Jesus commands it, and it is that important. Secondly, give yourself to unity. Be willing to sacrifice vengeance when others sin against you. One of my favorite verses is 1 Peter 4.8. It says, Above all, maintain an intense love for each other, since love covers a multitude of sins. I think one of the greatest lies ever spun by the devil is that in order for you to forgive someone else, they have to be contrite and ask you for forgiveness. It's not true. You can forgive and let go of any pain or anger or bitterness that someone's sin may be causing you 
because you've been forgiven and healed in Christ. Let love cover sin and forgive sacrificially. How many times? As many times as Christ has forgiven you. Is there someone here that you've been holding a grudge against? Someone you're angry with? It's hurt you. Brother, forgive them. Sister, forgive them. For the sake of Christ. Thirdly, give yourself to evangelism. Be willing to sacrifice your comfort to share the good news with others. God has people in this valley, in your spheres of influence that belong to him, who will believe upon hearing the gospel. Friends, embrace the potential awkwardness of those conversations so that they might embrace the Savior. Lastly, give yourself to fellowship. Be willing to sacrifice convenience for deeper relationships. This has become a maxim of mine. You're probably sick of me saying it. But inconvenience is a byproduct of intimacy. We need to be willing to be inconvenienced so that we can know one another. So that we can keep that other command in 1 Peter 4. To be hospitable to one another without complaining. I think treating friends and strangers with kindness and generosity is an underrated mark of a Christian. Even among Christians. Church, get into one another's lives. Call each other during the week. And not just the people you like. Have one another over for dinner. I mean, we're not a large church, so it's a really simple goal for you to have, to say, I'm going to have everyone that's a member of the church over to my house over the course of the next year. And to sit down with a calendar and to plan that out. I'm going to be hospitable to them. I'm going to get to know them. I mean, if that seems like too much, maybe you just make it your goal to have somebody over once a month. If you don't want to have somebody over to your house, invite yourself over to somebody else's house. I give you permission. Right? Tell Herschel and Darlene, we're coming up to hang out. Y'all are lucky Dale's not here. He might take advantage of that. (laughs) Friends, if we want to experience the blessings and the fruit of gospel community, the kind of blessing and community that God calls us to and promises us in the Bible, we have to do the hard work of cultivation. It doesn't just happen on its own. I mean, some of y'all have gardens, and you know that if you don't pull the weeds, plow the ground, and plant the seeds, that you don't get to enjoy the crop. Unless you're me, then everybody brings you vegetables. We have to give ourselves up to growing our fellowship to cultivating our friendships in Christ. We need to work together at it now. And let's work together at it this morning as we rejoice that indeed God has made us his people through his word, through his blood, and through food. Let's do this as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want to remind you of the wonderful truth That unlike Israel, we're not seeing God from a distance. We're seeing him up close as we see Christ in our love for one another. Moreover, we are not eating in his presence at a table alone in the corner, far off. 
Now, we're not, we're, we're not uh, what's a baby in uh, Dirty Dancing, right? God, God does a Patrick Swayze. Nobody puts baby in the corner. No one puts God's people at arm's length away from God. He has brought us close. We don't eat at a table in the corner. We eat with him at his table for all to see because he delights in us. He sings over us, the Bible says. That is magnificent. Let us rejoice together this morning as we eat this food and drink this cup. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us a ragtag group of broken sinners together. We thank you that in your infinite wisdom you determined before eternity began not only that you would come and die for our sins in order to reconcile us to yourself, but also this small group of people in Nellie's Ford, Virginia would gather together on this Sunday morning to celebrate your gloriously good work together. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you for dying for our sins, for being our burnt offering, for being our fellowship offering. And it's to your glory we prepare to eat and drink now. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.